I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On today's episode, we examine the history of written constitutions around the world. And I'm so excited and honored to be joined by two of America's leading historians who have written pathbreaking books on this important topic. Linda Colley is the Shelby M.C. Davis 1958 Professor of History at Princeton University. She is the author of the new book, The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions, and the Making of the Modern World. Linda, it is wonderful to have you with us. It's a tremendous honor and pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And David Armitage is the Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History and former chair of the Department of History at Harvard University. He's the author of many books, including The Declaration of Independence, A Global History, and most recently, Civil Wars, A History in Ideas. David, thank you so much for joining. It's such a pleasure to be back in Philadelphia, especially with my old friend and colleague, Linda. Wonderful. Well, Linda, your new book has inspired extraordinary praise. Uh, Jill Lepore of The New Yorker has said, if there were a Nobel Prize in history, Kali would be my nominee, and she calls your new book incandescent and paradigm-shifting. Tell us about the thesis of your new book, The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen. Well, with this book, I wanted really to do two things. Uh, there have been codes of law and rules of government written out since ancient times. But I wanted to look at something rather more specific than that. From about 1750, single document constitutions that are much more mass produced start spreading at an exponential rate across continents. By 1914, the onset of the First World War, there are constitutions in every one of the world's continents. So I wanted to try and work out why that was. And the thesis that I came up with, and which I still believe in, is that there are links between this, this array of rather different constitutions and shifting patterns of violence and warfare and invasion. Uh, in some cases, states are disrupted, new states are created, like the United States, which then choose to write a written constitution uh, to legitimize and launch themselves into the future. But at other times, rulers decide to create these new kind of constitutions because they want more manpower, they want more taxes, and so a constitution becomes a kind of contract between them and their population. At the same time, as wars begin to make more and more demands on people, you also get demands from below. Uh, why should we pay this tax? Uh, why is our government expecting us to do all these things? If we are going to do them, there should be a payback. 
So again, there's a sort of pressure from below and not just initiative from above. So that was one thing I wanted to do. But the other thing I wanted to do was to take constitutions out of their national and nationalist box, uh, take them wider than uh, the expertise of lawyers and legal scholars, to, to look at them as a phenomenon that changes ideas and human behavior and assumption, really to open up the subject, if I could. Thank you so much for that. David Armitage, Linda Colley's powerful thesis that constitutions were adopted in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, not so much to guarantee individual rights, but for leaders to ensure more manpower and more taxes, as she said, to ensure mass conscription and reward and entice sustained wartime loyalty, as she puts it in her conclusion. This is striking and provocative, especially for American audiences who are so focused on liberal constitutions. What is your reaction to Linda's thesis, and what should we make of her argument that far from primarily guaranteeing individual rights, constitution-making for much of the modern era was a way of ensuring mass loyalty to leaders in wartime? Well, I think my reaction could be summed up as admiration, uh, delight, and almost complete persuasion, as Linda has reminded us through um, many of her major books, uh, until remarkably recently, the default settings for world politics were not those of peace, republicanism, and the state, but often war, monarchy, and empire, and the intertwining of the imperatives of war, the centrality and the salience of monarchy, and the continuity of empire uh, is really the larger armature over which uh, she has uh, stretched this remarkable, detailed, and compelling argument. Insofar as constitutions are at their core about consent, we need to ask, well, consent to what and for what? And in the era of competing empires, often led by monarchs, often driven by the imperatives of war, and because driven by the imperatives of enormously expensive war, therefore driven increasingly by the imperatives of taxation for which one needs consent, the circle closes insofar as constitutions are needed to uh, sometimes compel, often simply to persuade consent towards ever greater exactions into the pockets of citizens, especially male citizens, and also consent on the part of those citizens, often as, as Linda shows, overwhelmingly male citizens, to take part in the warlike enterprises of the predatory and competitive monarchs who are fighting on behalf of their uh, states, which are often empires, increasingly on a global scale, and increasingly, and this is one of the great innovations of the book, not simply territorially, but also oceanically as well. So a very important thread, which no doubt we'll pick up in our conversation, is the centrality of naval warfare to the competition between empires from the middle of the 18th century onwards, and the particularly enormous and compelling expenses which arise from naval warfare, which again demand greater fiscal exactions, 
greater needs, therefore, for consent, and therefore the uh, proliferation of what Linda uh, compellingly calls a novel political technology, the novel political technology of the printed constitution. Thank you so much for emphasizing that crucial aspect of Linda's thesis, namely the spread of print technology as a way of enlisting the consent that she describes leaders were attempting to achieve, especially with regard to naval wars. Linda, you begin your pathbreaking book with the story of Pasquale Paoli and his account of Corsica, which was a book written by James Boswell describing his attempts at constitution making. Tell us about Paoli and why you chose Corsica as an emblematic example to begin, and then perhaps introduce a few other memorable examples. There are so many, including that of the constitution making of Catherine the Great. Yeah, well, um, I wanted to keep some kind of chronological momentum in this book. And I started with Corsica because Pauli creates his very innovative constitution there in 1755. Uh, He's a an army officer, as are many of the heroes of this book. Uh, He's trying to make Corsica independent of Genoa, which has uh, been the presiding power for centuries. And he drafts this constitution, which simultaneously gives almost total democracy for men over 25 and allows them to hold office or be elected if they wish, uh, while also demanding their military service uh, for to, to fight Corsica's war of independence, to keep other enemies at bay. Um, this is a constitution that really deserves to be better known. Um, and the reason why it isn't better known is important. When Pauli drafted this constitution, there were no printing presses on Corsica, which was very poor. Uh, So the fact that this constitution retrospectively fell down the cracks, uh, this is partly because the independence campaign fails. France takes over Corsica in place of Genoa. But it's also that Pauli can't publicise his constitutional schemes, his new constitutional venture in print and send it round the globe. Uh, and, and that is a crucial element of a constitution's success. It's one reason, only one reason, why the American constitution is so successful, because the United States has a very advanced press network by 1787. As for Catherine the Great, she doesn't really write a constitution, but she produces this remarkable document called the Nakaz in the 1760s, which is at one level an attempt to reorganize the laws of the Russian Empire, but it goes much further, proposing a welfare system, for example, and mass education, all sorts of things. And she can use print to a degree. And this is a massively translated document which goes uh, across Europe and America and, and helps to spirit up 
constitutional ideas. And I wanted to include Catherine, partly because before 1914, constitution writing is almost exclusively a masculine genre. Uh, And I wanted a woman in this story. But also, Catherine the Great's popular reputation is mainly on account of her real and reputed sex life. Uh, I really wanted to underline the point that she had some really important and pioneering ideas. David, Linda argues that the American Constitution was more influential around the globe for other constitution makers than was the Declaration of Independence. And yet in your pathbreaking book about the Declaration, you emphasize that it wasn't the individual rights parts of the Declaration that proved influential, but its claims about sovereignty and international law. Tell us about the intersection between your book about the Declaration's influence and Linda's about the growth of global constitutions. Well, I think uh, we've attempted in in our separate books to do something quite similar, which is to write a global history of very large processes, but using specific documents, particularly printed documents, as the, the indices or the signs which help us to locate those very large, sometimes rather abstract processes as they're treated, for instance, by our colleagues in political science or in constitutional law. As historians, uh, I think what we want to do is to make concrete those processes, to look at the individuals behind them, to look at the specific instances, and then to build up the larger patterns from them. So in parallel with Uh, Linda's enterprise in her book, I tried to track the spread of declarations of independence. And I began the book hoping to find that there'd been many declarations of independence before 1776, that 1776 was a switching point, maybe an intensification of a particular political genre uh, on its uh, trajectory towards a larger uh, global future. Uh, But I was rather dismayed, you may already have inferred that I'm not Um, at least by birth an American, rather dismayed to discover that there were no declarations of independence so-called before 1776. That although the 1776 declaration uh, traveled extremely widely and extremely rapidly within a matter of weeks, it had reached uh, Ireland, France, Denmark, the German lands by the middle of August of 1776. It was being translated, commented on, sometimes refuted across the Atlantic, having traveled very rapidly uh, through the networks of print, again, something that Linda emphasizes in her book, and through the rapid circuits of maritime communication. After 1783, that is after the Treaty of Paris and the recognition of American independence, it rather drops out of the conversation, even in the United States itself. So the, the history of the reception, let's say, of the US Declaration of Independence is much more patchy, much more up and down, much more lumpy at particular moments than is the history of the US Constitution, I think. Uh, And also um, the the Declaration of Independence becomes a genre distinct from and independent of, uh, pun perhaps intended, independent of the US Declaration of Independence 
itself. So many declarations of independence, more than 120 of them, more, more than half of the current members of the United Nations have a document that they call a declaration of independence, emerge in the years after 1776, but not always in direct dialogue or under the direct influence of the US declaration of independence itself. Something that is said at the time, that is, let's say the, the 50 years around the turn of the 19th century, is that the influence of the US state constitutions was as great and certainly also contributed to the prominence of the US constitution itself. And I think that's something very important to, to bear in mind. Linda, of course, uh, talks about this in, in the book, uh, but particularly in France and then in the larger world influenced by France during the course of the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars, the impact as it were of the, uh, the collection of constitutions produced in the United States, not simply the single constitution of the United States, that traveling American constitutional package, including the state constitutions, is an enormous toolkit or set of templates, which other constitution manufacturers reach for very readily in the 19th century and onwards from there as well. Linda, what so struck me about your book, as well as David's, is that both of you argue that the primary motivator of the export of declarations and constitutions was not enlightenment liberalism. It was not ideals of individual rights and limited government, but instead, as you argue, the exigencies of war, and as David argues, the exigencies of sovereignty that led to the spread of these documents. How do you see the relationship between your thesis and David's? And what would you say to American audiences who are surprised about the limited influence of Enlightenment liberalism? I think it's important in all history not to adopt an either-or interpretation, and, and David would agree with that. I don't think it's a, a question of, well, is it war or is it Enlightenment or is it print? It's, it's a mixture of all these things. War and different kinds of violence are often a powerful immediate spur, but how individuals react to that spur is often governed by uh, their prior reading. Um, you know, many of these actors are influenced by the Enlightenment or by the ancient classics, or they are authors themselves who've written for print in other purposes. Uh, I mean, it was one of the things that really interested me when I wrote the book, that constitutions have been compartmentalized. We tend to think of them as the creation of lawyers uh, and bureaucrats. But in fact, many of the constitutional activists I look at are engaged in different forms of literary creativity. They are newspaper owners. Uh, in some cases, they write books for children. I mean, Catherine the Great did, um, as well as being deeply interested in Enlightenment ideas. So I think we ought to see this extraordinary phenomenon over time, post-1750, as a response to, to multiple stimuli. I would prioritise war, but I would be the first to admit that it's not the only one. I think, too, that what David and I have in common 
is that we, as David says, we, we trace these documents across continents, across boundaries, and we look at how they influence each other in different locations. And of course, as more and more constitutions and more and more declarations are published and circulate in print, what you do and what you find is that constitution and declaration makers are taking bits from different sources. This is what happens in Norway when they make their constitution in 1814. They are influenced by the American constitution, but they're also influenced by French constitutions, by Dutch constitutions, and they they spin all these things together as well as adding their own indigenous material. The Indian constitution makers in the late 1940s are doing exactly the same thing. So these Texts are increasingly melange, if you like, of inspiration from different parts of the globe. Thanks so much for that. And your example of Norway is so powerful with the constitution makers struggling to articulate their role with Sweden, which is seized the territory from Denmark, literally cutting and pasting from the different sources, including Madison, but also the European sources in order to create a structure of government. David, given that melange, as Linda puts it, are there any generalizations you can make about what ideas or structures travel globally more effectively than others? Or is it always just a question of taking from what's at hand, given the exigency of the moment? I think I would completely agree with Linda that we should think of these processes as, let's say, promiscuous and pragmatic, especially if we remember and as uh, Linda's book very strongly reminds us the exigencies of war, of state building in war, sometimes building new states through warfare and revolution. Um, We should think of the actors uh, as trying to create consent, and that's why printing presses become so enormously important. We have numerous accounts, for instance, if we just hop to the other side of the Atlantic from Norway for the moment, uh, uh, in Spanish America, uh, the invention of the portable printing press and how important that becomes as an engine of revolution, being able to run off multiple copies of your manifesto, your declaration, or your constitution becomes tremendously important in terms of manufacturing consent. But also in those circumstances, you're reaching for precedents, uh, you're reaching for the templates and the models, uh, which are necessary to create the documents you're going to print to circulate. And uh, that becomes probably quite a profitable subgenre of print, uh, especially during the Spanish-American revolutions, where uh, collections of translations, not just of constitutions, but of also other handy materials, uh, a chunk of Thomas Paine here, the American Declaration and the French Declaration of Rights there, all translated into Spanish, all bundled together into a handy paperback flat pack, which you can use to write your constitution, declaration of independence, manifesto, whatever you want from the uh, the gobbets, the pieces that you've uh, that have been thrown together by the translators. That becomes a very prominent genre. Uh, and again, Linda writes in the book about how 
and prominent the, uh, the parallel genre of collections of constitutions becomes very rapidly in the wake of the, the US constitution. Interestingly, and I still don't have a good answer to why this doesn't happen, uh, the first collections of declarations of independence don't emerge until the 1950s which is quite different from collections of constitutions. And I think says something about the different imperatives of constitution making and of declaring independence. Declaring independence is a more punctual activity, something that happens at very specific moments. Whereas constitution making is something which is continuous, especially through processes of amendment and revision. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously says that the average life of a constitution should be 17 years, I think it is. And uh, those who studied numerous constitutions in the aggregate over time say that the life of a constitution is about 18 or 19 years before it gets amended or replaced. And there's a famous joke about the French constitution of a reader who goes into the library and asks for a copy of the, the French constitution. The librarian says, try the periodical section. Indeed. Linda, there's a wonderful moment in your book where Gouverneur Morris, having recently played a central role at the American Constitutional Convention, is in Paris around the time of the revolution. He's in his hotel room, eager to write a constitution for the French, and runs into a guy who bursts in, and he's got a constitution he wants to write for the Americans. To, to what degree does the impulse to export a national constitution matter? And to what degree does the balance of structure and rights actually determine a constitution's effectiveness? Or instead, is the form less important than factors you point to elsewhere in the book, like a culture of constitutionalism, judicial independence, the rule of law, and the like? Yeah, those are uh, huge questions. I, I included Governor Morris and that anecdote, partly because I, I find Governor Morris such a, a fascinating figure. And again, he's someone who's who, who who indulges in all kinds of writing and not just writing constitutions. But uh, I also included that anecdote because it shows a, a cultural tendency, which has often been forgotten, that because these constitutions are always being printed and issued in collections, constitution writing becomes a leisure enterprise, not just a political enterprise, just as you might say, oh, you know, it's raining today. I think I'll try my hand at a novel. Some people say, you know, I don't think, oh, let's see, Sicily has a constitution. You know what I'll do. I'll draft a kind of constitution that might suit Sicily. And obviously, Governor Morris was operating at a rather more serious level. You get this sense of guys, and they always are guys in terms of this amateur constitution writing, really thinking that this is something that they can usefully spend their time doing. So that's one point. Can you remind me of the second part of your question? Because it was very, very long, and very important. It was one that you raised in your book so powerfully, which is that the text itself, the structure of a constitution, may tell us less about whether it's effective or not in constraining power and guaranteeing rights than other factors like judicial independence or a culture of devotion to the rule of law. Tell us more about that. Well, the point I wanted to get over there was that constitutions can do many things. 
They may, if you're fortunate, last and ensure levels of democracy and reign in governments. But of course, very often constitutions aren't good at that. And yet people keep issuing constitutions. So so why? Well, one reason is, as I say, that constitutions do different things. They allow a state to proclaim its identity or desired identity. It helps put a polity on the map. And increasingly, too, I think, over the long 19th century, constitutions come to be seen as a desirable aspect of modernity. If you want to show that not only are you a viable state, but you are a modern state, fully belonging to the 19th century or the 20th century or whatever, increasingly you issue a written constitution. And another aspect of that is how places which are at risk of being taken over by others, uh, by imperial powers, say, also start issuing constitutions, not just for domestic purposes, but to advertise the world, look, we are a modern state. We are not a place that should be dismissed and colonized and taken over by others. And you can see that mode of thinking very much in Hawaii, which issues its constitution first in 1840, trying to keep the Europeans, but also the United States at bay, which it succeeds in doing for about half a century. Also Tunisia, the first maker that is an Islamic state of a modern constitution, issuing it in 1861. And there's various motives. It's not a particularly democratic constitution. It's not really interested in that. What it wants to do, the Tunisians, is to try and guarantee Tunisia's independence and to repel the French. In the end, of course, it doesn't succeed. But the multiple uses of these written and published devices is an important part of their spread. Thank you for that. David, given these multiple uses that Linda refers to of constitutions, they're publicizing a state as modern, declaring a state's sovereignty and whatnot. Are there any particular factors you can point to that do make a constitution successful as an engine of liberalism, of limitations on state power and a guarantee of individual rights or not? I think I I would perhaps rather take up the last part of uh, Linda's last answer and not tip it towards liberalism, which I think is a rather contested and maybe sometimes not very useful term for much of the period that uh, her book deals with in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's something of an anachronism, at least before the early 19th century. But to think again about modernity and the international context and the conditions of success there, something that I think we, speaking from a position of someone who lives and teaches in the United States and has many American students, something that we tend to forget when we talk about, say, the US Constitution is the international context for it and how tremendously important it was, even in that particular instance, to proclaim to the world 
that the US was entering the international world on equal terms and as a good citizen. The Declaration of Independence did some of that work, but the US Constitution itself, with its references, for instance, to the law of nations, uh, was very much directed to the outside world, an international document as well as a national document. And so part of the reason for printing copies of the US Declaration, as indeed of the later declarations that Linda's just been talking about, was precisely so that those copies would travel outside the borders of the particular nation, nation state or nation state empire to other countries to be translated, to be picked up there, and to be appreciated precisely, again, as an index of the modernity and the good conscience of that particular country, which was now going to be ordered, stable, and somewhat uh, something that could be engaged with on the international stage. So those are terms uh, in relation to security and, let's say, interdependence, uh, which are only contingently and certainly not necessarily related either to democracy or to liberalism necessarily through, through much of the 19th century. So I noticed, for instance, I was going through um, George III's library, the bulk of which is at the heart of the British Library here in London, other parts in Windsor Castle. He has copies of the very rapidly produced English translation of Catherine the Great's Nakaz and the, um, the documentation of the process that led to the writing and the promulgation of that. He also has a copy of one of the earliest printings of the US Constitution as well. It was necessary for any politician, any ruler uh, who was surveying the international stage to be au fait and up to date with the latest constitutions. And that, that becomes a very important aspect of the circulation of political knowledge and what we might call the mutual surveillance of sovereigns and monarchs in the 18th and 19th centuries to keep up with their, their modernization plans. And so by the middle of the 19th century, it becomes as essential uh, to have good sanitation and a ruthless prison system as an index of modernity as it is to have a constitution. And certainly democracy is come somewhat behind those ideals. So liberalism, I think, is not the main heart of the question uh, until at least the latter part of the, the, the 19th century, if we're going to discuss those determining factors for success, longevity, and in particular for international acceptance and uptake of constitutions. That's a wonderful insight into George III's library. And, and Linda, you note that the British Museum was founded with the idea that it would be a kind of national university offering free to all lifelong learners the possibility of learning from global constitutions and others. And, and, and the American founders hoped to create a national university here that would serve a similar purpose. And I must say that the National Constitution Center hopes to fulfill those hopes by putting these documents online and making them available for free to all. What can we learn about the role of women and constitution making? You mentioned that most of these constitutions were written by guys, and you have a fascinating chapter, Why Were the Women Lost?, noting that although Mary Woltencroft talked about the importance of the constitution as a standard for all people to rally around, Many constitutions in the U.S. and around the globe became more restrictive when it came to women's suffrage and other women's rights throughout the 19th century. Why was that? Well, I think this fits in um, perhaps all too neatly, uh, but I think there is a connection with the links between 
the surge in constitution writing and the pressures of warfare. If you inhabit a world where you assume that women in general cannot and will not fight, that they are not going to be suitable commodities for armies and navies, then you don't face so much pressure. Uh, You may indeed even be averse to the idea of incorporating them within a written constitution. Instead, you can say to your male population, look, in return for making yourself available for military service, you will be given the unique privilege um, of being able to vote. Obviously, your women folk who are not eligible for fighting will not vote. Um, And I think that comes to be widely accepted. And I adduced some examples where the opposite applies. There's very few of them. But one of the most picturesque that I was intrigued by was Pitcairn Island in the South Pacific, which becomes the very first place in world history whereby a constitution or a document that comes to be regarded as a constitution gives women in 1838 the same voting rights as men, and this endures. But why is it able to happen here? Well, partly because at that stage, there's only a 100 people on Pitcairn Island. It's not going to be involved in any wars, though subsequently Mark Twain will write a very, very good short story imagining, um, well, what happens if Pitcairn Island does go to war? Um, But of course, it doesn't. So what you find is that really until the early 20th century, such places that are experimenting with women's suffrage are either very small, like Pitcairn or the Isle of Man, or they are very distant, like New Zealand or the frontier territories in the United States. But big states, big polities, which take the risk of war seriously, they tend to leave women very deliberately out. And I think that's important. Some people say, oh, well, written constitutions just formalize pre-existing female exclusion from political rights. But that's far too simplistic. I think the fact that these written constitutions wrote female exclusion into law makes women's ultimate suffrage much harder to get. Because we all know when things are fluid, there's a possibility for change. Write it into law, harder to fight against. So, again, I think, I think women's exclusion can tell us much more about the nature of these written constitutions over the long 19th century. Fascinating. David, tell us about women's rights and the rights of enslaved people and 
declaration making. In in the U.S., the women at Seneca Falls invoked the declaration to argue for the suffrage. And of course, abolitionists from uh, Prince Hall to Frederick Douglass invoked the declaration to argue for the unconstitutionality of slavery under natural law. Was that the case around the globe? Or as, as you argue, were, were declarations invoked more to enshrine notions of international sovereignty r- r- rather than of natural rights? I think on balance, uh, what what you say about um, declarations as documents of international sovereignty, national sovereignty protection on an, on an, uh, an international stage, that's certainly the case. That doesn't mean that there aren't um, important uh, counterexamples to that, or indeed that there aren't revealing uh, histories of the reception of declarations of independence and in their language by other groups as well. So we know that the, uh, for instance, the African-American uh, reception of the US Declaration of Independence begins immediately in the summer of 1776, as uh, African-American readers immediately see that the promises of the second paragraph of the Declaration, all men are created equal, are not being applied to them. This, of course, is exactly the the broken promise or the the unfulfilled promise that Frederick Douglass is going uh, so searingly to uh, expose again in uh, his uh, extraordinary speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Something that I noticed as um, an anomaly, uh, but it's an explicable one, is the absence, at least until the 1970s, as far as I can tell, again, just speaking of the US context, of Native American uses of the US Declaration of Independence. I think that has a great deal to do with uh, Jefferson's language of merciless Indian savages, in quotes, which is in that document, which effectively inoculates um, any usage of that document uh, uh, for uh, Native American groups when they wish to claim their sovereignty. And there are relatively few um, groups of indigenous peoples trying to claim autonomy within existing states or settler colonial societies who use uh, the language of independence at any point uh, in later world history. Uh, So it's relatively rare. Um, And again, uh, the makers of declarations of independence are overwhelmingly, at least until the 20th century, the pattern is very similar to constitutionalism, are overwhelmingly male as well. I'd add one footnote to to what Linda just said, and uh, again, that very important um, thesis of her book about the the prominent maleness or guyness of constitution writing in relation to military mobilization. I mean, something that Linda knows extremely well um, has been revealed by social historians of warfare in uh, the early modern period and on into the 19th century is, of course, the enormous impact that warfare has on women and the remarkable presence of women uh, on the battlefield, behind the lines, applying laundry, food, sex, and other services to men, quite apart from the women, as it were, on the home front, whose lives are turned upside down by the absence or uh, the, the maiming or the death of their their male colleagues. So I think there still remains a little mystery because uh, there has to be some way to induce the, if not the consent, at least the assent 
of women as well to the proliferation and the expansion, the deepening uh, of the uh, the hooks of warfare into society in, in this period. So I, I, I don't disagree with Linda's thesis, but I think it does deepen the mystery about the absence of, of women in constitution making since they too needed to be persuaded to be complicit in all of the stresses, the strains, and the turbulences of expanding warfare in this period as well. Many thanks for that. Linda, among the pathbreaking contributions of your book is its sustained rebuke to American exceptionalism. A conventional narrative taught in America is that our Constitution sprung uh, Zeus-like from the genius heads of the framers that it provided a shining example of natural rights for the rest of the world and as the longest surviving written constitution continues to provide a frame of government in a way that other states have not experienced. You, for many reasons we've discussed, show that that's quite narrow. And in fact, you put the American constitution-making experience in the context of the broader wars that were going on at the time and efforts to achieve the mobilization and conscription that other constitution makers did as well. Tell us about the ways in which the American experience is more illustrative than exceptional of your thesis. I think what I would say is that each constitution is different. You know, you could write an exceptional, an exceptionalist history of each constitution almost, but it would be incomplete because precisely because written constitutions are made up of words uh, which turn into print, uh, which spread across frontiers, uh, there are so many multiple intellectual influences and there is this pressure of war recurring. And one of the ways I, I tried to stress that was that everybody who's written about the American constitution says quite rightly uh, just how many of the founding fathers had a legal education or legal experience. That's absolutely right. But if you look at the number of them who had actually fought on the battlefield or had raised money for the American Revolutionary War or administered it in some way, the number of those is even higher. And of course, the man standing and dominating the Philadelphia Convention is the general, George Washington, who wears military uniform throughout. So even here, you can see the emphasis on war, uh, and, and the founding fathers know that perfectly well. They are very worried that okay, they've got independence, they've driven the British out, but the British are still, after all, in Canada. They've got Spain. What about France? How are they going to bring these different states together in a way that will stick? How are they going to get them to pay taxes so that the United States can pay its debts, continue to attract foreign merchants, and so on. So, so the if you look at so many, so much of the correspondence of the founding fathers, sometimes they are exultant, but very often they are anxious and worried. 
And if you look at the, the, the opening essays of what becomes the Federalist Papers, the references to war, the threat of war, how are we going to cope? How are we going to stay together? And you know, how are we going to build a navy? Again, David's point of you know, the navy. You know, we've got no money. So you can focus on the exceptional aspects of this extraordinary document uh, drafted in Philadelphia in 1787, and exceptional and remarkable things are there. But that's only part of the story. And looking at the document in wider context does not mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. It just gives you a broader sense of how this text came to be. It's really an extraordinary aha moment when you remind us that these two features that were taught that the Constitutional Convention was called for to raise taxes to pay the war debts, in fact, were a standard feature of constitution making around the globe for centuries. And yet you also remind us that there are exceptional features too. David, what would you say about those exceptional features? You've studied, of course, the Anglo-American constitutional tradition. Is there something distinctive about that tradition from Magna Carta through the constitution incorporating Enlightenment thinkers like Montesquieu that gained traction around the world and sets it apart from other constitution makers? Or is it more important to stress the globalism of these exports? I think it's more important to express, well, let's let's say the cosmopolitanism rather than globalism, which, which might be a slightly inappropriate term for the, the late 18th century. Uh, you hint at it yourself by mentioning Montesquieu, uh, who was read by everybody. Uh, George III was brought up reading Montesquieu and actually produced an enormous uh, summary, precy of, of Montesquieu. Uh, that was a key text for Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of the two most influential texts in the Constitution debates, along with William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. Um, recovering that cosmopolitan context uh, is precisely, as, as Linda was saying in her remarks, is precisely recovering the context within which the founding fathers so-called operated themselves. Um, there's, there are other studies to be written about how that cosmopolitanism, how that internationalism, how the multilingualism uh, of that moment was written out of American history by exceptionalist historians. Uh, but I think it's very important to say that recovering the international and global context of the constitution as indeed of the Declaration of Independence is not some plot by globalist historians of the 21st century uh, to disrupt uh, everything that's wonderful and exceptional about US history. It is in fact to recover precisely the horizons, the background, and indeed the motives and intentions of those who authored those documents themselves. And also putting back that context of warfare and militarism. Uh, we can, I mean, can remember that even that, uh, we can remember that even emblematically by recalling that the US Constitution was, of course, thrashed out in secret in Philadelphia. And that secrecy was maintained by armed guards outside Constitution Hall as well. Uh, that uh, there was a, a military 
presence, a ring of steel around that constitution-making moment. I've also uh, noted the wonderful coincidence actually in a recent review of Linda's book that the USS Constitution, uh, Old Ironsides, the, the one surviving ship from the first federal navy, is almost like an emblem of the US Constitution itself. It brings together warfare, navalism, the enormous fiscal pressures that warfare cr created in the 1790s, that outward looking turn of uh, the American government at that, at that point. And also uh, that when uh, Timothy Pickering uh, sends George Washington a list of the names of potential ships for um, the Federal Navy, uh, the first one is the United States, the third one is called the President, and the second one is the Constitution. Normally, at least until recently, till I read Linda's book, I didn't bat an eyelid about that. But reading Linda's book, I thought, that's really rather extraordinary. That is exceptional, that within less than a decade of the promulgation of the US Constitution, when at that point there were almost no other national constitutions anywhere in the world, it was an act of extraordinary hubris, one might say, confidence, one could say in another, another uh, view, uh, to name one of the key ships, which endures to this day, albeit moored in Boston Harbor, Char the Charlestown Navy Yard. I wouldn't want to put up the USS Constitution in a fight against any modern weaponry. And I tend to feel the same way about the US Constitution, that uh, having lasted two centuries may not actually be an advantage. And I think there's been some evidence for that skepticism in recent years. But that may be the subject of another podcast. Well, we'll look forward to convening again for a conversation on that fascinating topic. And for this one, it's time for closing thoughts in this absolutely riveting and uh, deeply illuminating conversation. Linda, with what thoughts would you like to leave We the People listeners about the relationship between warfare, cosmopolitanism, print, and constitution making? I think I want to leave with a rather different comment that, as I say in this book, I came to this topic as an outsider, uh, like David. Um, I'm a Brit. Uh, we both come from a country which, alas, uh, doesn't have a codified constitution. Um, so to a degree in writing this book, um, as someone who's moved to the United States, I became a partial convert, but I became an absolute convert to the conviction that these texts, written constitutions, are extraordinary. They are not arid. Um, some of them are far too long, I have to say. One of the great advantages of the American constitution is that it is short, or at least in, in its original incarnation. But they are worth looking at, whatever your interest, uh, whatever your nationality. These should be as much scrutinized and explored and thought about as novels, if you like. Thank you so much for that. David, the last word is to you. What are your closing thoughts for We The People listeners? Well, I think I would agree with uh, Linda that Perhaps it takes an insider-outsider's eye, a, a friendly critic's eye, to see aspects of American history and American founding documents, whether it's the Declaration or the Constitution, that are, have not perhaps been visible to uh, American historians. And then also to see how extraordinary those documents are when we look at their parallels and other instances of similar 
documents and what they betoken throughout world history as well. Um, this is all an encouragement to go to go broad, to go wide, to put the US back into the world. Uh, I think Linda's book arrives at exactly the right moment for American readers as well as for readers around the world to reinsert crucial aspects, defining aspects of the American historical experience into a much wider global context. And I, th I think that uh, fits a much larger agenda for the US in the world at the moment. And it will be interesting perhaps to reconvene this conversation in four years time or 10 years time uh, to see uh, just how these processes have unfolded and indeed what the, the longer impact of uh, Linda's remarkable book will have been by that point. Thank you so much, uh, Linda Colley and David Armitage, for a memorable conversation about constitution and declaration making around the globe. We will hope to reconvene before four years' time and continue our learning together. Dear We the People friends, your homework for this week is obvious. Please read Linda Colley's pathbreaking new book, The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen, Warfare Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World, and David Armitage's The Declaration of Independence, A Global History, as well as their many other illuminating books. Linda and David, for shedding so much constitutional and historical light. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere across America and around the globe who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional conversation and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of lifelong learners from across America who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. And we so appreciate our global listeners as well. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. Give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate, or send me an email to let me know that you're listening in, especially from around the world. It's wonderful to get those emails to realize that people across the planet are hungry for learning together. It's a real privilege to be part of this conversation with you. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.